Good morning, church family. My name is PJ Ryan. I'm an elder here at Calvary Bible Church. Um, today, for our scripture reading, we will be in the book of Colossians, reading verses 1, 24, through chapter 2, verses 5. Uh, let's read together. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages past and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory and this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. May God bless the reading of this word this morning. But thank you for being here today. Uh, I would encourage you to keep your place in Colossians chapter 1. Today, we kind of hinge the two chapters. We end chapter 1. We go from verses 24 to the end of chapter 1. And then we go from chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. If you're new here, we are in our fifth week of uh, our series going through the book of Colossians. We'll spend probably about uh, 14, 15 weeks on in this book that only has four chapters. And quite frankly, I, I could spend probably at least a year just in chapter one and if you've been here for any length of time then you know why it's just uh, rich amen it's a wonderful chapter of doctrine if you have the book in front of you the book of colossians breaks down into three main sections you have the introduction in chapter one verses one and two then you have kind of the doctrinal section and we'll see why the doctrine is there uh, in chapter 1, verse 3 through 2, 5 is the doctrine section. And then you have the practical application in verses 2, 6 to the end of the book. But what's interesting today, it's, it's kind of random, if I'm honest with you. As you study the book of Colossians, the passage today seems like kind of shouldn't be there. It doesn't really fit. Because Paul, earlier in chapter 1, you see this just massive doctrinal treatise over over the Father's rescue plan and over Jesus as Lord. And all of a sudden in verse 24, Paul just kind of inserts his, himself, his story, what he's going through. And the question I have is why? You know, why would Paul take a pause from all of this beautiful doctrine? I would say the most complete while being most concise treatise of the gospel of anywhere in the New Testament. And all of a sudden, if you notice in your text, verse 24, there's a pronoun that says I, 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 I. Why? Paul inserts himself in the narrative. 
We see his suffering in verse 24. We see his calling. It's actually two callings. In verses 25 through 29, we see his hope in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And we see his warning in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But what is Paul getting at? But let's begin with an observation on life. How about that? True or false? True or false? We as people have the tendency to overthink things. Yes, say amen on that one, okay? Uh, amen, all right. We can all be like Spock. Anybody know Spock from Star Trek? He overanalyzes every single thing he encounters. But we just like to overthink things in life. So I came across a list of the top ten signs that you are overthinking something. And I had all ten, so it was bad. Number one, you can't stop worrying. Number two, you often worry about things you have no control over. You constantly remind yourself, remind yourself of your mistakes. You relive embarrassing moments in your mind over and over again. You often ask yourself what if questions. You have difficulty sleeping because it feels like your brain won't turn off. Anybody else in the room have that problem here? Yeah, that's me. Um, when you recall conversations with people, you can't help but think about all the things you wish you had or hadn't said. I'm using the hadn't said part of my part. Um, you spend a lot of free time thinking about the hidden meaning behind things people say or events that occur. When someone says something or acts in a certain way you don't like, you dwell on it. Number 10, you spend so much time either dwelling on past events or worrying about the future that you often miss what's going on in the present. Anybody want to say amen? (laughs) We overthink things. And we as Christians really are no different. We as Christians overthink faith. Standing firm in your faith. But what I see in our passage today is that standing firm in your faith is actually quite simple, but hard to reproduce. Standing firm in your faith is like grandma's mac and cheese. It's simple, but it's difficult to reproduce. As parents, you know, I think about my kids. I'm at the point now in my three little girls, I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old, and I'm already starting to worry about them standing firm in their faith, them combating against the values and the doubts and the thoughts and the questions of the world. Any other parents relate? Like, I'm terrified, you know, that one day that they will realize that there are other opinions in this world. And I overcomplicate my children, right? I mean, poor kids, all right? I, I mean, I, I think about all the different ways that I can protect them from the world, all right? I could throw them in p- private school. I take them to Awana. I drag them to church every time the doors are open. I can have the family devotions. But really, helping my children, helping other people stand firm in their faith really boils down to just a handful of things. Today, I want us to not overcomplicate faith. I want us today, as a consequence of this passage today, is to stand firm in the faith. If you have your text, notice with me uh, verses 23 of chapter 1 and chapter 2, verse 5. There's a phrase that I picked up. A long time ago, it says, begin with the end in mind. And so today, I want to begin with the end in mind. I want us to see what Paul is really getting at. What's the point of 
chapter 1, verses 13 through chapter 2, verse 5. And if you have your text in front of you, I can't get to the book of Colossians. Why can't I? Okay. Colossians chapter 1. Notice with me in verse 23. We briefly touched on it last week, and I'll unpack it more this morning. All right, notice in your text, verse 23. This is what Paul is getting at. This is the whole point of chapter 1, verse 13 through 2, 5. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now go over to chapter 2, verse 5, verse 4, excuse me. He says, I say this. So that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. So wait a second, what's going on in the church of Colossae that they are being moved away from the gospel hope that they have heard? How? By means of a persuasive argument. You tracking with me? So it's not just this, it's not just the subject of Gnosticism and the secret knowledge that is part of it, but even deeper than that, the church in Colossae is struggling with the thoughts and the temptations and the questions of the world when it comes to Jesus Christ. And notice with me in verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. What does that sound like? That they are trying to persuade them with this right here, with their mind, with facts, with debate, with arguments, with thoughts. And it makes sense why chapter 1, 13 through 2, 5 is so heady, so to speak. It's just doctrine. So if you ever wondered why some sermons I preach are all heady, all of them are pretty heady, but moving on. And some are more emotional, it's because I try to take the vibe of the passage. So chapter 1, 13 through 2, 5, Paul really just unpacks our faith and the gospel hope that we have heard so that we would not be subjected or moved away by persuasive speech. So the question we are answering today is this, what are the three ingredients for standing firm what I find amazing about Paul's argument is that he has this complex tapestry of doctrine, but his practical advice and application is so simple and so basic. The three ingredients to stand firm, one is in verses 13 through 23, another one is in verses 24 through 29, and the third and final ingredient to stand firm is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So if you look at your text with me, I'm not going to unpack verses 15 through 23 in abundant form, but the first point is this, to stand firm anchored to the truth. What is the truth that Paul has just been unpacking? Chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, that the Father qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So the, the truth, the doctrine that Paul is unpacking is that the Father's rescue plan, that he qualified us, that he made us fit to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, that he rescued us, he picked us up, and he moved us over to the kingdom of his beloved son, out of the domain of darkness, to a king that is love and that is sovereign over all creation. And then if you notice in verse 15, he then talks about the son, that Jesus is what? That he is Lord over all creation. He's Lord over creation, he is over recreation, or we would say new creations, and he is Lord over over reconciliation and all of this 
is to combat the waves of culture that are happening in the church of Colossae. In this small, no-name town in the middle, in the heart of modern-day Turkey, Paul is pushing back on the thoughts and the debates and the questions by using his massive brain and the Spirit of God. Paul is a highly intelligent dude. I feel so inadequate to talk about his passages. But how do we stand firm? It is to stand firm anchored to the truth. The truth of the Bible, the truth of the doctrine that we know, the hope of the gospel that we have heard, that is our anchor in stormy seas. Friends, listen, when we start questioning the truth that we know, when we go through difficult times, we are lifting up the anchor and we are susceptible to drift away. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord over creation, over his recreated beings, and over reconciliation. That the Father has brought me back to him through sending his Son to be the propitiation or satisfaction for our sin. That the Son is Lord over his creation, his recreation, his reconciliation. That the second Adam is not like the first. That the second Adam was perfect and righteous so he could pay for the faults of the first Adam and restore me, reconcile me, be brought back to the Father. The word reconciliation is apa, kata, lasso, which means from, against, and to change, to change me from being against God, to bring him back, to bring us back to him, having peace through the blood of his cross. That's the truth. If you caught any of that, cool. Um, but can I just say something really quick? When you suffer... Not, not if you suffer, okay? When you suffer. Can I get an amen? If you live long enough, you will experience suffering and tragedy. When you suffer, what is always the temptation that we have? It's to move away from the hope of the gospel that we have heard. God, I thought you were this, but I don't see you there. I thought you were good. But my circumstances say something else entirely. But friends, listen to me, that when you go through it, when you suffer, when you encounter struggles and thoughts of the world, the first thing that you need to do is be anchored to the truth. Don't run from it, but dig into it. I'll share this a little bit more at the end, but I think about my greatest trial in life. Uh, I think about my greatest trial in life. There's my niece, I believe. Okay. Uh, so I think about my greatest trial in life, was, and I've shared this story before. My son, my firstborn son, my only child at the time, passed away September 20th of 2015. And that was 10 days before his second birthday. And I think about the greatest temptation I had in my heart was just to let all the truth that I had been taught, all the questions and doubts of the world, just to let that take over what I had believed to be true. That's the first thing I wanted to do. But I had to run toward the truth because I was a pastor of youth and I, and I had, I was forced to wrestle with the truth even though my experiences said that God might not be good. We should be anchored to the truth. But then notice Paul in verse 23, he kind of segues to a new section of the scripture. Paul, I imagine at the end of verse 23, he sets down his pen in this massive theological treatise. He sets down his pen, and then he 
is there in the Roman prison with his friend Epaphras and Timothy Epaphras, the pastor of the church in Colossae. And then Paul shares his story. Verse 24 of chapter 1, it says this, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Notice this first phrase here. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. How many of you red flag right there? We'll talk about that here in just a minute. But notice this. I, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Point number two is to stand firm, anchored to the truth, aflamed. What I would say here is inspired. All preachers have to alliterate. Sorry, guys. This is the way we're wired. Okay. Stand firm, anchored to the truth, aflamed by others, or I would say inspired by others. And in verse 24, by others suffering. If you know that, if you have that blank. Others suffering. Verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of the body, which is the church, to stand firm by others and their suffering. Um, watching other people suffer can be inspiring. Would you agree with that? Sometimes it's like, it's like, it's like watching a train wreck, but, but when people suffer well, it's actually extremely inspiring. Notice here, what is their inspiration to endure is now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Why does Paul rejoice in his suffering? Because he knows his suffering inspires them. How does Paul's suffering inspire the church in Colossae to stand firm? How does his suffering... 800 miles to the west in Rome, inspire the church in Colossae to endure against the questions and thoughts of culture. This is it. What are they saying when they receive this letter? They're saying this, that if Paul can endure, then I can endure. That if Paul can sit in a Roman prison awaiting for his trial before Nero as a turkey on Thanksgiving Eve, if he can sit there, then I can endure as well. If Paul can stand firm against the thoughts and the debates and the questions, then I'm sure he has. He's sitting there in Roman prison for two years, most likely, waiting for the day to be executed before a psychopath named Nero. And if he can suffer for the kingdom of God, if he can stand firm in his faith, then so can I. And so can they in the church in Colossae. And Paul, friends, has suffered immensely for the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 9, when Paul is really introduced to this narrative in the book of Acts, it says that he must suffer much for the kingdom of God. And what does Paul endure? This is his list, his own list. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is saying all the ways that he has suffered. He was beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashings. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers of rivers, dangers of robbers, dangers of countrymen, dangers of Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, danger everywhere, okay? Don't hang around Paul, all right? I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and in cold and exposure. 
That's just the list that he gives us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And the memo is the church in Colossae is if Paul can endure while suffering, then they can endure while suffering as well. But I have two questions before we go on. Um, Question number one is this. Who is someone in your life that inspires you while you suffer? Have you ever met anybody that lost a loved one or lost a parent or suffered financial hardship or, you know, any number of, I mean, we can all make a laundry list of all the ways we suffer in this world, amen? It's just a disaster out there. How many of you have ever said, you know, man, I don't know how they made that. I don't know how they suffered that and still stood firm in their faith. If you haven't met that person, I would encourage you to think about them and put them in their in your repertoire, okay? That if they can stand firm in the midst of all of this, then so can I. But the second question I have this morning on a real practical nature, so who is somebody that inspires you to endure? But then question number two is who is watching you? Who is watching you in the way that you should suffer? Let me just talk to parents in the room. One of the greatest stressors in my life, and it shouldn't be, but it just is because I'm human, okay? One of the greatest stressors I have in my life is hoping that my children choose Jesus and walk with him in the midst of all of the questions of culture. That terrifies me to death. Um, To parents in the room, what is the most important thing, what is the most simple way that you can inspire your children to walk with Jesus? Your own relationship with Jesus. Your own relationship with Jesus, how you endure in suffering will speak louder to your children than any church service, any preacher, any youth pastor, any program will ever share. That your children, your grandchildren, your aunts, your uncles, your nieces, your nephews, all of those people are looking at you and saying to themselves, if my dad or my mom or my uncle can suffer and endure then I can too. And how do, they, how do they endure? It's because Jesus is the hope of the world. That is the simplest way for you to teach people in your life on how to endure is by your own example. And that's why what Paul is saying in verse 24, that suffering brings us closer to God, it increases our endurance, and it inspires others to stand. I mean, I think about that's the reason why stories like Job in the Old Testament stand the test of time not only are they part of the word of god but that's why job can minister to us some five thousand years or four thousand years after it was written it's because we see him endure and not curse god with any word of his mouth notice again verse 24 we're going to talk about the really the difficult phrase and it's this one now i rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh i do my share on behalf of his body which is the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, okay, problem. Anybody else have a red flag to this phrase? I've had more conversations with staff on this one verse than any other verse I've ever memorized with them. In filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Wait a second. That verse seems like it suggests that Jesus' sacrifice was not sufficient and filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. But what did, what did Paul just get done saying? 
that we are now reconciled to the Father in order to present us before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So initially, initially my, my understanding of that phrase is, oh, wait a second, Jesus' sacrifice wasn't sufficient, but within the context, that makes absolutely no sense because it was sufficient, because if it wasn't sufficient, we couldn't be reconciled back to the Father. So that can't be the case. It can't be the case that Christ's death was insufficient. So what is the correct view? There are eight different views by scholars on the meaning of this passage. Eight. Yeah. Uh, and I spent a lot of time in each of the eight views. And let's just take the next three hours and talk about it. Um, uh, <laughs> there's, there's a host of different views. If you want to know a difficult passage, whenever you see scholars uh, arguing and calling each other names, you know it's a difficult passage. They don't call each other names, but it might as well. Um, but the, the best view of this is this view, missional Christoformity theory. Okay, Paul is identifying with Christ's afflictions. One scholar says this about the phrase ending in verse 24. This phrase does not mean that there is a deficiency in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Rather, it means that Paul suffered afflictions because he preached the good news of Christ's atonement. Christ suffered on the cross to atone for our sin, and Paul filled up Christ's afflictions by experiencing the added suffering necessary to carry this good news to a lost world. So Paul is not saying that the death of Christ was insufficient. He's saying that he identifies with Christ's suffering. So he is trying to inspire or set aflame the church in Colossae by his suffering, but also in verses 25 through 29, by his calling. Notice his calling. You'll see a specific calling and a general calling in verse 25. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. What is Paul's specific calling? It is that he may fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. If you notice in your text, verse 25, what does Paul call himself? Of this church, I was made. I was made. God made me a minister according to the stewardship of God. The word minister or servant to Gentiles was a menial worker, but in the Old Testament, a servant was a trusted minister and envoy of the king the apostles saw that their mission was to represent Jesus, who by his obedience fulfilled what was written about God's servant. So Paul's calling in life was assigned to him by God, and his calling was to preach the word of God. Okay? But notice what it doesn't say. I find that to be very interesting, that Paul says his calling is to preach the word, but his calling is not necessarily to save souls or start churches or to train pastors or to teach doctrine. I mean, that's what I would expect him to say, but those are all what? Byproducts of preaching the word, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Notice verse 26, that is the mystery. Notice that word, highlight it. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. That is the mystery which has been hidden for past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the mystery in verse 26? The word mystery comes from the Greek word mustiron. 
It, it, is, it means the Gentile inclusion into salvation. Now, the word mystery is used, I believe, 27 times in the New Testament, and it's often used to refer to things that weren't fully explained in the Old Testament, but that were revealed in the New Testament. I'm about to go into the TMI world. Mysteries that are mentioned in the New Testament include the mystery of the incarnate God, Israel's unbelief, the mystery of lawlessness, the rapture, and here the mystery refers to the unity of the Jew and Gentile in the church. So Paul's first and specific calling is to preach the word, but then notice his general calling, his calling that we all have. We proclaim him. Notice what word is repeated again and again and again. He's talking about the mystery of including Gentiles into salvation. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. So that way we present Every man complete in Christ. His general calling is to what? To present every man complete in Christ. The word complete is the word telos. It's the root word that means it is finished. To telestai has the same root word. It's the same word that Jesus said on the cross. It is finished so that we are to be complete. We know that to be sanctified. The goal of our life here. The goal of Paul's ministry is to present every man complete or sanctified or to be Christ-like. Every trial, every verse, every conversation, every prayer, every small group gathering, every time you open your devotional, that should be the end that we seek. That we should become more and more and more like Christ. I... um, I shared in my gear up class this morning, I have these old journals and I've brought in this big stack of journals from college. And um, what's cool about journals is that you can go back and look back. And the one I shared this morning was from uh, May 25th of 2009. Okay. And uh, I was a young guy then. I'm still young, but have a lot more gray hair these days um, and less of it. So quite frankly, um, and it's interesting to see when I, when I look back on 2009, all the things that I struggle with and all of the things I hoped. And you should be able to look back on your life and see how you have progressively become more and more like Christ. But let's just answer the question. What is the sign of spiritual maturity? You know, you know, what is the sign that you are becoming more and more Christ-like? Is the sign of maturity knowledge? No. Is a sign of maturity just passion and emotionalism or joy? No. Spirituality? No. Walking by the Spirit? No. Speaking in tongues? No. Those are all byproducts of maturing in Christ. But the, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The sign of our maturity in Christ is not how much we know. The Pharisees knew a lot also. But it is the love that we have for God and the love we have for others and our desire to please Him by making disciples of all nations. Love is not overlooking sin. Love is in lieu of sin. Let me just share something in our culture. Um, And I'm... It's kind of slipping away from me. Okay. But let me just share an observation I have in culture that, that we think that it's really godly to l- excuse sin. 
or to overlook it. That I'm really loving somebody well if I can just overlook the sin that they have in their life. Uh, there's one preacher that says that there is an 11th commandment in our culture that thou shalt be nice. Okay? That we in our culture that say this, that I am not offended that you confronted the sin, but that I'm more offended... Excuse me, let me repeat that. I'm not offended that you confront... I'm... Sorry. I am more offended that you confronted that sin than I am that sin offends God. We overlook our people's sin and mistakes. Paul's general calling in life is to, to preach the word of God. His general calling is to present every man complete in Christ. But then notice the third part. Stand firm by being anchored to the truth, aflamed by suffering and the calling of other people. And then chapter 2, verse 1 says this. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are in Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Wait a second. So we stand firm in the faith, anchor to truth, inspired by other people's suffering and calling, the maturity that they have, that that should be our general calling to help people become complete in Christ. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. But wait a second. So what is the third necessary ingredient to stand firm in the faith? Notice in your text, verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged. That we are to be affirmed by one another. Can I just speak a little bit? Um, you are not meant to be an island in your Christian walk. That you are meant to have people around you. What does it say? To encourage you. The word encourage in the original language is parakaleo, which means to call out from alongside. That tells me something about encouraging other people. Wait a second. To call out from alongside. What does that mean I have to do to encourage people? It doesn't mean that to encourage a brother, I, I can do the Jedi mind game. You want to be encouraged. Okay. What, what does it actually say? It says to call out. Wait a second. So if enduring, staying firm in the faith, is that we need one another, that we need to encourage one another, what does it require us to do? To speak, to say things that are uplifting. Can I just speak to people in the room? Um, when you come to church, what is the most normal thing to do? Two things. Well, that person, and that, and I don't have Just start complaining, right? But instead, what does it tell us to do? That we are to encourage one another, and then notice the word knit. That word knit in the rhythms of language is only used six times, and it means to bring two claws together. And what is the thread of bringing us together? It is the thread of love. That we are to love one another. That we are to set ourselves aside. That we are to find ways to encourage one another, to speak truth into one another's life. And all of the purpose of this, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. 
the way we stand firm in the faith is threefold. That we are anchored to the truth, that we are set aflame or inspired by other Christians' suffering, and that we are affirmed and uplifted by one another. Didn't know if I was going to make it. Okay. But so what? You know? Maybe some of you here this morning are just kind of tired of the Christian thing. Maybe you're just really going through it and you really question the love of God and the sovereignty of God and his love for you. Um, Wherever you are in your life, my first question for you in the so what is what truth do you need to be reminded of? Anchored to truth. Friends, listen, when you go through it, when you go through Paul, when you go through suffering, don't run from the truth, run to the truth. The word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Where are you in your spiritual life today? What truth do you need to be reminded of? Question number two is to be inspired by other people. My two questions for you is this. Who is someone in your life that inspires you to endure suffering? But then question number two is this. Who's watching you? <laughs> okay, That may bring comfort to you or it may bring terror to you. Who is watching you? But then number three is this. Who is affirming you? Affirmed by one another. But, hey, what? Let me back up from that comment. Who are you affirming? Who are you encouraging? Who are you coming alongside Paracoleo and speaking words of encouragement into their hearts? If I can just share a story, and then I'll close with this story. I, I shared earlier that in September 20th of 2015 was the day my son unexpectedly passed away. And if you ever want to have something rock your world... Uh, that is about as bad as it gets. I mean, here I am, you know, serving the Lord with my life. I went all the way to seminary. I spent $70,000 getting this training. The Lord blessed me with his firstborn son, and then he just was gone overnight, 10 days before his second birthday. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, okay, Lord, you know, I have done everything right. I've served you. I've gone to Texas. I moved back. I'm a full-time pastor for crying out loud, Lord, and why did you allow this to happen? And I look back and why I can stand before you today. And let me just say this. I'm not a superhero Christian. Trust me, I am fallen just like you. And if you want to know um, more information on that, don't talk to my wife because she'll give you plenty of information about how I fail. Okay, I am normal. But I look back on my life and, and I just say, okay, Lord, how, how was I able to endure, not in an egotistical sense, but just in a pragmatic sense. And what I find is all three ingredients are there in my life. That I was anchored to the truth of the Word of God. Trust me, when I, that happened, the first thing I wanted to go was to get away from God, all the stuff that I had learned, because the God failed me, in a sense. But I was a pastor that forced me to reconcile the truth of God's Word with reality in life. I said, I have to be anchored to the truth. Number two, when my son passed away, all of these people came out of the woodwork to share with me how their trials and how their pain affirmed me, give me strength. If they can endure, so can I. But if I'm honest with you, the third one was really the peace that really kept me steady, was being affirmed by one another. I had people come 
into my life, barge into my life to encourage me to walk with the Lord. No matter what you're going through, no matter what trials come your way, and they will, I would encourage you to stand firm in the midst of the questions of the culture, in the midst of the trials in life, being anchored to the truth by being inspired by other people and being encouraged and affirmed by one another. Let us pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you just for your word. It was a lot to cover. And Lord, I, I, um, I pray your spirit would teach us all things. And um, whatever was lacking in my... Um, I pray that you would fill the holes. And Lord, I pray that we would love one another, that we would encourage one another, that our hearts would be knit together with a thread of love. And Lord, I pray that we would endure this world and all of its questions and doubts. And Lord, give us strength as we walk into this world, as we are lights on, the, lights on a hill and lights to the world. Um, I pray for those that do not know you as Savior. Lord, I do not know you have a personal relationship with you. I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth that they need you, that you have come and you have died to save them from their sin. And, Lord, that they would enter in a relationship with you today by faith, by receiving you as Savior and Lord of their life. Lord, I just thank you for this church. I thank you for the, the dedication that we have to the truth and that we do not shy away from it. And Lord, I just pray that we would apply it to our life. It would not just become more stuff that we know, but it would become practical and useful. And we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.